Dylan, you ready? I'm ready. Todd, stay quiet. Classic Todd. <laughs> Todd move. That's nice that the hotels let you got everyone bring their dogs. Yeah, until Todd took a shit at the Sheraton. California. Keeping up with the Coens, an OC box set rewatch podcast. Hello and welcome to Keeping Up with the Coens, episode two. Still here, still not canceled. My name is Ryan Drake, and I am joined, as always, by my forever co-host, Chelsea Trinidad, Dylan Irwin. Here we are, back again. How are you doing, guys? Uh, I've been good. I know you guys have had a bit of a weird week well here here in the here in the other oc it's been a weird week uh full of some strange weather but we're we're getting through it it has been for those of you who are listening to this i suppose on the day it's released um a little bit of uh, podcast magic for you we're coming at you from the distant past <laughs> 2012 is when we recorded this <laughs> two, two, yeah, it's, two, <laughs> Real time. it's really weird i just got my driver's yeah, license obama just got um, reelected. it's a great time we're uh, all partying it's, it's gonna be great but we um, we just had a massive, massive ice storm in Oklahoma City. I was out of power for five days. Ryan, how long have you been out of power? Uh, it's been a week now. Still continued, no power. I, uh, I think the last time we recorded was the last time I had power until uh-huh. today, which leads me to believe that the light in the universe is the OC. The common denominator is the OC. And so we're going to take this energy and we're going to move in to this week's episode. The pod gods are on your side. Heck yeah. So last week we uh, we dove deep into the pilot episode. Uh, this but this is this is a technically a box set rewatch podcast, which separates us from all the other rewatch podcasts you might find on YouTube. Um, <laughs> we are here to discuss today episodes two, three, and four. Uh, and to prevent us from going on and on and on for hours, we are setting some we're setting some limitations for ourselves. We're setting some timers. Uh, we're gonna give ourselves 10 to 15 minutes to go through each episode and uh, discuss what needs to be discussed. And I have drawn the short straw, so I am going to lead us through our discussion of episode two, The Model Home. The Model Home, iconic. It aired on August 12th, 2003 to 7.9 million viewers. This one was written by Alan Heinberg and Josh Schwartz. You'll remember from last week that Josh Schwartz is pretty much the god of the OC writer universe. He's the creator of the show. And uh, Batman brought a Robin with him this time and can definitely (laughs) see how the episode has expanded. It's gotten bigger, but... Because I'm a big fan of cliff notes as an English major, I want to make sure that I give you cliff notes for this episode. So this is what the model home is about in a nutshell, and then we'll get into the nitty gritty. Ryan's foray into Newport living is coming to an end, and it's time for him to enter the foster system and officially transition from the Cohen's angsty golden retriever to a Charles Dickens orphan. That is, unless our intrepid trio has anything to say about it. Upon seeing Chekhov's model home in the Cohen's kitchen, our team comes up with a plan to hide Ryan and one of the Newport group's works in progress. This episode has it all. Punk music, horse alopecia, In-N-Out Burger, skateboarding, mix CDs, and even some uh, pseudo-redemption for everyone's favorite chest-shaving heartthrob. So let's dive in. So right out of the gate, you know, some of the things we love on this show are outfits and music. Um, and this episode really knocks it out of the park. You have Rufus Wainwright right out of the gate with, uh, with some tunes. You all might know him from the Shrek one soundtrack. Um, fantastic music. <laughs> Very quickly, Dylan rank, rank the Shreks one through four. Uh, one, 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 one. Perfect. So I got to say this episode starts out in the most OC way possible. They're surfing, they're sailing, and then we have a slow zoom into the Cohen's backyard where Seth and Ryan are floating on the coolest pool inflatables that I've ever seen, and they're talking about Ryan's last day. What are you guys feeling when this episode starts? Love that song. Um, and I just, I knew I'm, I'm ready for more Sandy. Like it starts with Seth and Ryan. Great. Love, love them. Love the pool. Love Rufus. Where the hell is Sandy Cohen? Well, the good news is you figure out who Sandy Cohen is shortly because this is also the introduction of the Cohen's outdoor grill. 
Um, before we move on, I will say this is the first time that we see the show's rather iconic opening sequence. Oh, yes. And after you notice it, you can't unsee it. When they do kind of the pan over uh, the neighborhood and the community, they show Pepperdine. They show Pepperdine? Malibu, baby. <laughs> they show a college in the completely wrong city. So wait, is that is that in, that's the intro of every episode, right? That's the intro of every episode moving forward, right? As an Oklahoman, I couldn't tell the difference. I just knew it was California, so it was fancy. Here we come. Also, uh, Sandy Cohen is in this episode for 11 minutes and 17 seconds. Ooh, is that less or more than last week? That is less than last week, but also less than the next two episodes, I believe. I am. Um, so, so before we get into the intro, there is some drama going on. Um, this is actually mm-hmm. the first time that we pseudo meet a character who's going to become very important. When we first see Kirsten, she's on the phone with the one, the only Caleb Nickel. And they're talking about this, the, their new development that's going on and the status of the development. So, you know, right out of the gate that Kirsten and her father have a very interesting working relationship. What do you all make of that? Shout out to Charles Widmore. I'm a big fan of his work. Heck yes. <laughs> he plays the, Alan Dale plays the same character in every, he is Charles Woodmore. He, in this show, in um, Entourage, he's the same yeah. character. I mean, we'll, we'll go into this further, like in, when he makes his first official appearance um, on the next disc, but like get excited, big things are happening for one Kirsten's father. One Kirsten's father. That's actually my address. So, the fun thing about this episode, your fun fact, if you will, is... That was so stupid. I'm not going to let you slide that in. <laughs> I was so dumb. All right, move on. So uh, the fun fact about this episode <laughs> is when Ryan is signing his papers, because we're going to talk to your caseworker on, on, you know, tomorrow, which is Monday. I'll get into the timeline in a second. Um, he actually signs it Ben McKenzie. And they just left it in the episode. Oh, I went back to check. I did not notice that. So actors, they're just like us. Also, I love that your Sandy impression sounds nothing like Sandy. It's just like, a, it's like the most typical Jewish man. Here, here, here's the thing. First of all, it's okay that I'm doing it because you're my Jewish friend. And am I, offend, am I sure. offending you, Ryan? Not okay, at all. Boom. So um, the Coens sit down. They have their proverbial last supper after some Seth sass about Ryan just staying with them. <laughs> Um, and then like, uh, like Chelsea said, we get our iconic intro. And so one thing that I find incredibly interesting about this intro is the billing for the actors. You have Sandy first, then Kirsten, then Ryan, then Marissa, then Seth, then Luke. And then of course, Tate Donovan, who deserves top billing because Tate Donovan is the Mm -hmm. patron God of all things. Wonderful. But what do you all make of that billing? So Rachel Bilson wasn't in the credits at all at this point, right? She was not. I don't think Julie was either. Sandy, Kirsten, Ryan, Marissa, Seth, Luke, and Jimmy. Uh, no, that's, that's about right. I think um, as the show goes on, do they change the billing to make Ryan top build? I think they eventually do. It should just be Sandy and Tate back to back, but yeah. <laughs> just Tate every single time, just different photos of him. Maybe one with <laughs> Dustin, RIP. Um, it's like that. Have you seen that uh, that Jeopardy meme where every the answer to every question is Jeff? But it's just it's that, but with Tate Donovan. Jeff. What is San Francisco? No, Jeff. What is Jeff? Right again. That's the show that I want to see. Um, so yeah. our theme ends. We're all really hype about what's going on, and then Ryan, of course, can't sleep because he's thinking about being in foster care. He's thinking about how he doesn't like it. He decides to run away. He tries to escape, but of course, Seth sees him leaving. Um, what do you guys see going on here? What do you make of this? I will say this is like a theme that carries on throughout the series is Ryan not sleeping and also trying to run away. This happens multiple times. So they go outside into the driveway. They meet up with Marissa, who, as we discussed last week, lives at the end of her driveway and sleeps there. So she, of course, is there. And she asks them what they're doing. And she, of course, uh, gets it out of them. She gets it out of Ryan and she gets it out of Seth. Um, but this... This is what I want to talk about, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but this is important. So I did a very deep dive into this episode based on one statement. So Seth says, whenever Marissa is saying, well, I'm on my way to my friend's birthday, it's Summer's birthday. And Seth goes, well, her birthday is actually Wednesday. So Wednesday in 2003 was August 13th. So if all this is supposed to be going on on the same weekend, I'm assuming the fashion show 
from last week was on a Friday, which means Ryan got kicked out of his house on a Friday and Sandy took him back Saturday to find out his mom had left. So this episode takes place starting Sunday, August 10th, 2003. So they're partying on weeknights, but it's totally fine, guys, because Newport Harbor High School doesn't start until the next week, according to their official film calendar. This has been your timeline update. So, so wait, the fashion show was on a Friday night, you think? Is that what you said? I think it was. The only reason I say that is because it doesn't matter if the students were there, but all the parents were also there and just getting their drink on and partying. And so, I mean, you have to assume they at least have some siblings, some sort of work-life balance. Good, good detective work, Tellen. You know, that's what I'm here yeah. for. I'm, a, I'm insert uh, Charlie Day, uh, it's always sunny meme with the uh, wires and the strings. But, Okay. <laughs> So Marissa decides that she's going to join them and they all uh, come up with the brilliant plan to hide Ryan out in the model home. And on the way there, they have an excellent conversation about punk while Rooney is playing. Ryan, you're kind of the music guy. Um, How do you feel about (laughs) that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm fine with it. I'll allow it. It's fine. Um, Rooney is about as close to punk as we had in 2003. Mm -hmm. So it's fine. It's okay. I'm also happy that once Ryan finally makes it to the model home, he still has time to get his workout in. Um, using some of the scaffolding. Oh, you know what? That's good. I've, you know, I haven't had power all week, so I haven't been able to like do like my normal life, like stuff. I haven't been able to run or work out. So good for him. He's like staying on track. I respect it. Wait, Ryan, you mean you weren't like uh, curling like milk jugs or anything the last few days? I know, I know, right? You know what? Ryan Atwood's the more the more dominant Ryan in this scenario. <laughs> So after they settle Ryan into the model home, we flash to a Tate Donovan scene, which is automatically my favorite scene in the episode. And I got to tell you, when I was watching this episode, even as a freshman in high school, the scene where Julia asks Tate Donovan for a check for Caitlin's horse and the horse alopecia and the vet, that gave me money anxiety, financial anxiety. And like, I didn't have a job or anything at this point. And so maybe I'm just naturally anxious, but did any of you all feel anxious for Tate Donovan in that moment? I didn't feel anxious for him. I will say though, um, at the time, I didn't clearly appreciate like what a fucking ridiculous problem a horse having alopecia is. Like it seemed kind of just like a funny quirky thing that Julie said. And now as you know, a wizened 31 year old, I'm just realizing that that is something like such a specific problem that only a handful of people will ever actually have. But it is and a real problem. Thought of that. Did it ever happen in Jinx? Oh, I'm sure, but I didn't hang out with the horse girl. <laughs> Come on, I was cool. Oh man. yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't fuck with the horse girls, but uh, <laughs> that is a very real problem. That if you had a horse, you could encounter. So shout out to Julie for trying to take care of the horse and do the best thing. China deserves the best care possible. Um, this is my favorite version of Julie Cooper, by the way. Like Julie Cooper's living my dream life in these first, like the first season. Like everything about her, I just love. Oh my god, she wears those cropped juicy suits. Like what? Uh, mom- yes, she does. Oh, Episode three. <laughs> four inches of midriff. It's impressive. So yeah, she was the original Mean Girls mom. So guess what? It's time for another party at Holly's place. I don't know, like. Going back to the timeline, I'm pretty sure that there has been a party literally every night since Friday. At Holly's, Holly's Beach House, open for business. Yeah, that, and that is ridiculous to me. Um, and I mean, I, I want to get into the party, but there are two very important things. I want to know if you want to get into them. The first one is the fact that mixed CDs. Marissa makes him a mixed CD. Yeah, I'm glad that you. I'm glad you brought up the mixed CD because it's a very important part. It actually comes back in season three, I believe. The mixed yeah. CD comes back. Yeah, that same yeah, mix. Yeah. Do you guys remember the first mixed CDs you ever made? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of downloaded like comedy songs from Kazaa. Heck yes. Uh, no, mine was from Napster. It was called Chelsea's Tunes, but I spelled tunes without an e, so it was kind of like Chelsea's Tons. And um, Country <laughs> Grammar was number one on there. Followed by um, uh, the 3LW song, Baby, I'm a Do-Right, that oh one. My, oh, you yeah. You guys are so oh, hell much yeah. cooler than me. Mine was called uh, Dylan's Jams with a Z, and I had the same b 52 song on there twice. <laughs> so I agree that we are much cooler than you. <laughs> it's, so, it's so bad. Um, and then, of course, we have this iconic boardwalk scene where uh, Ryan and Marissa are riding the bike together and Seth is skateboarding next to them. Um, and then what is playing? Isn't Paint the Silence playing in that moment? Not Paint the Silence. It's um, by the Dove. Oh, Caught by the River. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a really sweet moment. But what stuck out to me about that scene 
was, I mean, Marissa is kind of like holding on to the back of Brian. It's, it's very intimate for someone that you just met. And when you have a boyfriend. And we have a boyfriend. And it's very public, which is kind of weird because Brian's supposed to be in hiding. Yeah. And then they're on a very busy boardwalk. And Marissa covers Ryan's eyes while he's riding on a bicycle. And she's standing on the back. That's not safe. And then, so, so of course, I am sort of team Luke because they meet up with Luke. Or rather, Luke meets up with them at the diner. And he delivers a couple good quips. He says, aren't you a little far from 8 Mile? Um, he says, what are you like spokesperson for geeks of America or something? That's a stellar line. But so this actually made me think, how do they define geek in the OC universe? Because I've always had trouble seeing Seth as a geek. And now Ryan is allegedly a geek too. And in the freaks and geeks dichotomy, I feel like Ryan would be more of a freak than a geek. 100% agree with that assessment. Can we, but also, can we all agree that if it weren't for the fact that Luke was cheating in the first episode, we would be 100% Team Luke? Because because what Marissa's doing is really shitty. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. And uh, yeah, they, they immediately had to introduce, like, Luke is a shady person. But as we'll find out at the end of this episode, his shadiness has very strong limits. Like, he is quite a dynamic character. I have a special note that when they go back to the uh, model home at 26 minutes, Ryan is playing a Game Boy Advance. I uh, did Ryan, did you have a Game Boy Advance? Of course I had a Game Boy Advance. Heck yeah. Oh, those were the days. Those were the days. And so basically what's happening now is they're trying to play it cool. They being Seth and uh, Marissa uh, with the fact that they're literally hiding a fugitive, um, a, a Chino man. Um, in the model, in the model home, a chino, a chino man. They're hiding a chino man. I take offense to that. <laughs> a ch- a ch- I thought of it as more of a, like a play on Encino man, but you, Dylan took it to a weird in place. Encino man. <laughs> that is Ryan is now known as Encino man. Um, and so we have this amazing, amazing scene between Seth and uh, Sandy, where Sandy's like, "We got to go look. We got to go look for for Ryan. Where is he?" And he looks at Seth and he goes. Promise me right now that you'd never do that, that you'd never run away, no matter how bad things may seem. And oh my gosh, that is some good foreshadowing for what's going to happen, spoilers, at the end of this season. Um, mm-hmm. And this is also an excellent transition into Hallelujah and... Also foreshadowing for the end of the oh season. Oh my gosh, truly. Is it Marissa that actually says to Ryan, this song reminds me of you? What part of of Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley would remind Marissa of Ryan? The baffled king composes Hallelujah. That's the lyrics I remember. It. So yeah, that's Ryan. He's our baffled king. It, it be- it's not when he what, what was it? Slit your throat and cut your hair. You, you, you broke your throne. You cut your hair. I think it's you broke your throne. You wow, cut your hair. Chelsea, your yours was way darker. Chelsea, slit your throat. Cut my life. Yeah. No, you're thinking of matchbook romance, which we're not talking about your mixed CDs. I, Excuse me. I, uh, I, my, my personal contender is the minor fall, the major lift, which foreshadows all of the Ryan carries. Um, you know what I'll insert right now? After the episode, uh, Marissa wears this awesome cap sleeve fitted tee and a tiered mid-length skirt that stops around her knees. Again, when we come to Marissa, her style was very specific to her specific body type. No one else in the world, unless they were, you know, lanky and beautiful and just perfect like that, could pull that off. No one cared what it made their body look like. Everyone got it at the, at the Gap. It's still in your mom's closet. Go check it out. Those are good times. Is that your style moment of the episode? Definitely. We got it. We did it. We did it. Mission accomplished. Um, so Marissa goes back to the party, and Luke is being Luke. He's being drunk. He's being weird, which is why teens shouldn't drink. Um, and Marissa ends up leaving in a, in a hissy fit because Luke is being mean about her, uh, her Inchino man. And so Luke follows her and finds out that she was actually going to and from the model home uh, to see Ryan. And they go in there, uh, Luke and his boys, to confront Ryan for what he's doing. They get in a fight. They set the place on fire. And then all of a sudden, we have a little bit of a redemption arc for our boy Luke. He has an opportunity to eliminate Ryan, to eliminate his competition, but instead he saves him from the fire. Guys, how do you feel about Luke's redemption, his many redemption? Wouldn't that have been wild if he just left him to burn? Oh my God. I, I mean, we like give him a lot of credit for this moment, but really like it would be completely psycho to not do that. It's not my fault that I find men who do the bare minimum attractive. <laughs> so 
They save Ryan. Ryan ends up hitching a ride back to the house with Luke. So there may be a budding friendship. There may be a, you know, some kind of a... It's an awkward car ride. So they go back to the house, back to the Cohen's house, um, where the police are there. And both Ryan and Luke get arrested. And I was personally upset about it because neither of them got Mirandized. You're supposed to Mirandize someone before you arrest them. I've been arrested and I didn't get Mirandized when I got arrested either. So, Yeah. I really thought that was the law too. I thought that was the law when I brought it to my lawyer. I was like, listen, they didn't even read me my rights. And she was like, it doesn't matter. And I was like, okay, great. Nothing matters. But like, especially in Orange County, it's like, come on people. But that's pretty much what's going on in the model home. So we end the episode with possibly the best. Well, the model home burned down. The model home's it's gone. It's gone. And the thing that's not gone is my interest because it ends on a cliffhanger with both Luke and Ryan being taken in to custody. To juvie. juvie. So that's the model home, y'all. Was this a good follow-up to the pilot? Yes. I agree that it was. It definitely expanded their world more. Um, I think it was important to give Luke some redeeming qualities. You know, no one likes a villain that's just strictly evil. It's always interesting to see layers to people. Was Luke the original anti-hero? I think so. The answer's no, by the way. No, the answer's no, he's not. He's just a bad that's guy. That's Hamlet. Mm. He's like too simple to be an anti-hero. Way too simple. Well, so we end up with them in juvie. They get arrested. Sandy's his attorney. And then that gets us into episode three, Chelsea. All right. Episode three. Original air date was August 19th, 2003. That's my birthday. Happy birthday. That's pretty wild. Passed. Yeah. Also, 8 million people is a shit ton. Is that more people than attended your birth? I believe so. Sorry, dude. It's close. Twitter wasn't around yet, so I couldn't promote it as hard. <laughs> The other thing was, obviously, we're talking about the air date. I mean, this was a midsummer release. So these numbers are even more interesting. It's not like, you know, traditional pilot launches in September, October, or whatever. It's a good point. This episode was written by Jane Espen. Espenson, excuse me. Shout out to Jane. We're big fans. And I'm going to give you guys a little rundown. Sure. So Ryan and Luke are taken to jail for the house fire, but Luke immediately gets let go because he's rich and has parents who love him. Hashtag privilege. Ryan is stuck in juvie until they can locate his mom. It's strangely filled with people who look way older than 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kirsten is stuck uh, planning a casino night charity gala with the Noopsies, as Sandy lovingly refers to all of the rich white women who live in their community. Sandy, of course, doesn't waste an opportunity to remind them all of how shallow and judgy they are. Five minutes into their meeting, Kirsten wants to jump off cliff. So Seth rescues her by convincing her to visit Ryan in jail. After seeing him get his ass kicked, Kiki and Seth bring Ryan home with them. Sandy finally locates Ryan's mom working at a laundromat. And he brings her to Newport, and they engage in a very awkward dinner with the Coens, filled with his mom just casually discussing the alcohol and domestic abuse and coke and jail time and general dysfunction that their family has endured throughout the years. Kiki convinces Ryan's mom to stay for casino night. She gets way too lit on champagne, face plants, and knocks over a blackjack table. It is very awkward. While this is happening, Seth and Summer actually spend the evening together when she discovers he is her gambling good luck charm. This is very cute and sweet. Also, Julie finds out about the mysterious $100,000 loan Kiki gave to Jimmy in the previous episode. Needless to say, Julie is not happy about it. Her and Sandy exchange words over the mail. Matter. This is not so cute and sweet, but also very satisfying because Sandy always knows the best. The episode ends with Ryan's mom sneaking out of the house. Kiki catches her, and Ryan's mom tells her to take care of her baby boy before bouncing out of town for good, barely saying goodbye to Ryan in the process. What an episode. Uh, I literally just watched this episode like literally an hour ago. Uh, first of all, did you know? Because I got us thinking. In this episode, Ben McKenzie is 25 years old in real wow. life. Wow. Yeah. Man. So when he, when he says, he, when she's like, what do you want to be when you, it's like, what do you want to be? And he's like 17. It's like, okay, well, you're 25, but that's It fine. could have been a true statement. <laughs> uh, also, Sandy Cohen appears for 14 minutes of this episode, which is a large, large chunk. He kind of dominated. So Dylan touched a little bit about, about the timeline of these episodes in the, in the beginning, but I found it to be a little suspect because somehow Ryan's mom was capable of moving to a totally different city and getting a new job within the span of like three days. It's pretty impressive. And she broke up with AJ. And she's like, I haven't, she's like, I haven't touched a drop of alcohol since I dumped him. And it's like, was that yesterday? I haven't. 
<laughs> it's been 48 hours. I'm a new woman. Yeah. Wasn't this when Schwarzenegger was governor of California, though? The jobs were booming. You know what? That's a great point about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Job then. This episode had a lot of moments of children just like burning the shit out of their parents. Like at the beginning, uh, when Seth is going in on Sandy and his mom, and his mom, um, she says something like, "I'm not his mom." And he, as he's walking away, he's like, "Yeah, good thing." And Sandy makes him apologize. Good for him. Um, and then there's also the mo- all the moments where Ryan is just being a real bitch to his mom. His, his eyes are, I mean, they were just straight daggers. That was harsh. There was a moment in the dinner scene at the Cohen's house where Ryan was looking. I thought, I, li- I literally thought about this. He was looking at her like they were playing among us together and she may have just like vented and he was just like looking at her like she was very suspect. Don sus. Yeah. Super sus. I just got to say, there is a question before we get too far away from prison that I had a question about. And maybe as you said, you've been arrested. I have not yet been arrested um, because I follow. We'll every, get there. We'll get there with I you. I follow every rule. Um, but I'm just curious, based on your time, is there a prison wife beater hierarchy? Uh, because I noticed the guy who messed with Kirsten and threatened Ryan was wearing a gray tank top, but then he was supported on either side by guys wearing white tank tops. Is there some kind of hierarchy that those of us on the outside don't know about? Yeah, let me tell you, based on my experience, uh, it's very similar to like the Star Trek red shirt guys. Um, I, I will say that in the jail scenes, what I thought was very funny was that at one point, the guy throws Ryan on the table and holds a plastic fork up to his neck. And then later Ryan has this giant like bruise on the side of his head. And it's just like, this is a thing with the guy in jail, but it's like a plastic fork just did all this damage. to him. He like displays it. He had, he had time marks on his neck. Uh, this is the other thing that I did not clock when I was 15 year old watching that when I was 15 years old, watching this show, um, jail scenes, Ooh. all minorities. Ryan's the only white person. Um, Sus. That's a little sus. What the hell? I'm gonna say it. And in fact, and then that made me start thinking. And really, the only people of color in this entire show are Teresa and then the DA that Sandy sometimes like talks yeah, to to get special yeah, yeah. deals as a black guy. His friend from Berkeley that comes to visit them in season four. Also, that's a literally. Well, it. and it's very ironic because whenever Sandy goes to sass all the ladies. He's the one who's like, maybe I'll bring home a black kid next time yeah. or an Asian. And it's like in that moment, he's like making fun of them. But then the show is kind of like a perfect. One, you, you can't know. say that in 2020. You can't get away with that line in 2022. He also gives them some shit at the end of the episode towards the middle, middle of the end, whenever he overhears um, Julie at the coffee shop and uh, he goes and sits down with her, takes a bite of her muffin, by the way, which was rude. Let's be real. That was kind of a COVID world, especially. You can't do that. Absolutely can't get away with that. But he also says something along the lines of like, you guys are the most, uh, we're supposed to be the most accepting community, which is very funny when it's just dominated by white people. So, okay, you know what we stop and talk about is that $100,000 loan. From previous episodes, we know that uh, they were childhood friends growing up. They dated throughout high school. They were kind of each other's first love. Jimmy doesn't know who to go to. He's in trouble. There's something going on with the SEC. We don't know a whole lot about it. It's just a thing with the clients. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a thing with the client. He tries to talk to his wife about it. His wife is kind of like, no one's dead. No one has cancer. You're fine. You'll figure it out. She has no interest in it. And this is how he solves it. I, uh, I also noticed that Sandy, whenever he's confronting Kirsten about it, he says $100,000. That's less than I make in a year. He said that's more. That's oh, yeah, more, that's than, more than I make in a year, which of course made me go down a rabbit hole. And so <clears throat> if you're curious, the average attorney salary <laughs> in California according to indeed.com in 2020 is $84,970 a year, which is actually 61% higher than the national average. So I remember he's not just an attorney. He's a, he's a public defender, which I feel like it's paid less. Yeah. public defender. What did they make? I, I was in a, I was in a government job and I did not make the California national average. That's for sure. So I wouldn't be surprised if he made like 40 or $50,000 at the most. Especially 2000, 2003 public defender money has got to be in the 40s. I feel like as the resident person who reads too many comic books and watches too many comic book movies, it's my job to make sure that everything being said in this show is accurate. 
Um, so here's what we have. First of all, we have the scene where Marissa and Summer are just hanging out at Marissa's house. And Summer, of course, uh, doesn't have her shirt on. You talk about figuring out how much Sandy's in the show. I want to know exactly how often Summer has a shirt on in these first couple episodes. But, um, but that's a big moment for me, by the Marissa, way. Marissa, but Marissa walks out of the room and she goes, Oh, yeah, it's just Seth. He's talking about going to, you know, he wants to go to a Star, Star Wars, Wars convention. convention. Okay. So I was trying to figure out why Seth was so offended. And so I looked at the stats. So we're in 2003, right? So, in, so we're like, we're in, we're in like an episode two world. Yeah. So Attack of the Clones had just come out. This episode takes place between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. So I understand why Seth would be embarrassed. Now, this is also right after the first two amazing Brian Singer X-Men movies came out. So Seth, I got to say, I approve of this message, even though I'm more of a Star Wars fan than an X-Men fan. But perhaps most importantly is comic books start to play a very large role in this show, as you all know. And I have an addition uh, for a new segment, a, a, a potential new segment. It's called Comic Book Minute. And we see Seth reading a comic book at the- I like that you just dropped this on us while we're recording so we can't say no. Yep. Go ahead. This is live. Um, yeah. But but so we see Seth sitting at the kitchen table um, in this episode reading a Batman comic book. So Seth was actually reading Batman issue number one, uh, 616, and it was written by Jeff Loeb. Uh, for you comic book people out there, you might recognize Jeff Loeb um, as the author of Hush. And that is, in fact, what Seth was reading. Issue 616 was written on June 25th, 2003, which also gives us an idea of when they were filming. Uh, this issue is called The Assassins. It's chapter nine of the Hush story arc, which, in my opinion, it's a top five Batman story, you guys. And honestly, there's rumors that the new Robert Pattinson movie that's coming out uh, is going to be taking some cues from Hush. Although I'd argue that it's taking more cues from The Long Halloween, but that's neither here nor there. But the point is, not only is Seth reading a Batman comic, but he's reading a very good Batman comic. So again, Seth, I approve of the comic book you're reading. And this has been Comic Book Minute. I hate it here. (laughs) I thought I was like going deep. I was like, oh, he had a plastic fork. Let's talk about that. And you're just like, let me break it down for you. Comic book style. I think I just turned to stone briefly. That's what all the girls in high school would do when I would say this stuff. It's crazy. Um, something important that happens while they're setting, uh, they're helping get the casino night party together is Ryan mentions to Kirsten that he used to work construction over the summers and has an interest in being an architect. Now at that moment, Kirsten kind of melts on him. It, it helps humanize him to Kirsten. And as we all know, as a, you know, loyal OC fans uh ryan's quest to be an architect is something that pops up throughout the entire series so one of the clock that this is the first time that we kind of get a taste of that i love it yeah the gang is ready to go to the casino night and (laughs) ryan's mom has made her transition from white trash lady to classy woman first of all she looks great secondly i think She's as I watch, I never noticed this until this rewatch. She's a she's like a pretty good actress. Oh yeah, I mean she she loses the lip liner, she loses the blue eyeshadow, she loses those country curls. Suddenly she gets a blowout. She has natural hued makeup, and boom! I mean it's almost like in teen comedies when the dork just like takes off her glasses and like flat irons her hair, and it's suddenly like a totally different person. No, it's going to be me. Like, she, she was me without power. When she goes to casino tonight, it's me when I get my power back on. <laughs> OGV, are you listening? Oh, wait, we're not mm-hmm. releasing this until... Well, you might still might not have power. I probably still won't have power by December yet. Um, so they're all in this great casino scene. Um, you know, Summer's finally paying attention to Seth because he is her good luck charm when she's playing craps. Now, that makes me want to ask you guys, what is your casino game? What do you guys play when you go to Vegas? It depends on what I'm trying to do. Uh, if I'm trying to win money, it's blackjack. Um, I have won money playing blackjack before. Um, if I want to just hang and have a good time, you, there's this game called Kino, and they will literally, it's, you just kind of just guess numbers. It's hard to lose money. It's hard to lose or win money on Kino, but like you can sit at the table forever and they will just continue bringing you drinks. I've never heard of this, and I'm a seasoned Vegas veteran. It's in. It's like tucked away in the back corners of the kind of shittier casinos. But yes, the the old strip, the old. That's my favorite part of Vegas. Is like what what is that area called? Oh, the old the old strip is where I was when I was in Vegas last year. It was a year, literally a year ago now. Uh, that's where I, I stayed in the old. I stayed in the old Stratosphere. Oh actually. yeah, I'm see, I'm a blackjack guy too. Um, because I saw that movie with Kevin Spacey about card counting, 
back when Kevin Spacey was cool. Was he ever cool? He was. Yeah, he was cool. And then now we, now every time you watch a movie with a minute, you have to donate $5 to uh, Planned Parenthood. You, you realize that the Kevin Spacey you saw in K-Pax is the actual Kevin Spacey. Um, so fun fact though, whenever Seth and Summer begin their little rendezvous, I thought it was a nice little poetic irony that his nickname used to be Death Breath Seth and he's blowing on the dice. So Death Breath Seth is using his breath to breathe life, you. if you would, into a relationship with a woman that hates him, which honestly is every man's dream. I will say it was also, first of all, she calls him uh, a couple of wrong names. Uh, I think Sid and Stanley were on the list. So um, yeah. He's loving it. Um, but also whenever whenever the situation with Don happens and she falls over, he like immediately ditches her, which I thought was a very endearing moment. Okay, so between that scene, Luke helping Don up, and then Kirsten saying she's with us whenever everyone was giving her all that crap, whenever they saw her fall over, those like were legitimate MVP moments for that whole group. And that made me start to like Luke even more. I mean, heck, compared to right before she fell over, when those two guys go, dude, that lady's wasted. I bet you I bet could bang her. Bang her. Oh, like, it's like, come on, guys. I mean, we also need to talk about how funny it is when she falls because she, I think she literally says, like, whoops, <laughs> she went from like She went from, like, whimsically falling down to being angry and yelling, just like, don't look at me. Yeah. <laughs> He just makes a lot of noise. It goes from like a very Mrs. Doubtfire, like did a boo-boo to like very angry. The alcohol all hit her at once as she was on the ground. It's almost, no, you know what it reminds me of is have you ever gotten like hit in the head with a ball or something? And mm. you're initially like, I've been hit in the head with a football and a frisbee and every kind of like flying object multiple times. And your immediate reaction is that you're like really angry because someone just hit you in the head. And then quickly you move on to like, oh no, that kind of hurt. I want to cry. And then just really quickly you move on to like, that was really, really freaking embarrassing. And you kind of just have like all those emotions flood you at once. And that's, that's what Dawn Atwood ha- had happened to her. I, uh, I also think that we need to point out the fact that I now know where Ryan gets it because she also ordered a seven and seven, which I believe is yeah. the official drink of Chino. <laughs> uh Seth ordering Mountain Dews from the bar and they serve it to him in rocks glasses. Oh, alpha move. Oh and no one, it's like neon yellow and no one knows. So uh, she falls down. They help her up. They, they, yeah, you've gone through it. And then Ryan is left uh, with the Coens. I want to know, Chelsea, what is the fashion moment of this episode? All right. I have both the uh, fashion moment and the soundtrack shout out prepared for you. We'll start with out- outfit of the episode. Can I guess what it is? Yeah, you guess what it is. Is it Julie's uh, tracksuit? No, it's not. Oh. oh, it is a suit though. Oh, it's not. Don't say it's Seth's suit. It's actually Ryan's prison jumpsuit. Oh, wow! What? You took it and you turned it. I respect that so much. The reason why it is that is that I walk into my closet and there's about eight identical outfits to that. The jumpsuit is so hot right now. We did not know this 17 years ago. Ryan, again, you could pick him up and plop him in an Urban Outfitters and he would blend right in. We didn't know that. It was ahead of his time. Yeah, the only thing, he was wearing the white t-shirt underneath it. I feel like if he lost the t-shirt, he was be, he's like ready to go to Coachella. Yeah, you need to show some cleavage in order for the jumpsuit to work. Or you need to have some kind of like a jauntily placed hat on your head. I've been wanting to bring this up since the first episode and I can no longer be silent. What is Ryan's necklace? Is it leather? Is it pantyhose? What kind of a choker is that? Like, cause you remember that, that period of time where girls wear the pantyhose chokers. Oh yeah. Is that what Ryan is wearing? I mean, it doesn't look like a hardy material. It's a chino, it's a chino necktie. And Luke obviously has the puka shells, which we will not, we don't need to discuss that. <laughs> it was a dark time for all of us. Yeah. In the very last scene, uh, as Dawn is leaving and her and Ryan kind of have their awkward wave goodbye. I mean, she spends more time saying goodbye to Kirsten than she does her own son. I found that to be kind of messed up. I don't know about you guys. But uh, Rain City by Turin Breaks. Yep. Yes. Yes. Great song. I believe that's on the mix. It is. It's on, it's on, the, it's on uh, mix one of the actual OC soundtrack. Which meant that all three of us had that song bumping whenever we all went to Sonic to get our uh, chocolate pie milkshake in a glass situation. Busted. Or, yeah, I was going to say, you nailed it. On, it's completely on the head. I was a fan of Cheddar Bites, too. Now my drink at Sonic, I get a strawberry water. 
Wow, you're so 30. I know. We were left with uh, Don's leaving. Uh, Kirsten comes in and says Ryan's going to stay with us for a while. And that's the end of the episode, right? Mm-hmm. So that takes us into episode four, the debut. Now that Ryan is staying with the Coens, he must attend the Cotillion Ball, where Newport's finest young ladies enter society. Luke's jealousy results in Ryan escorting Marissa. Jimmy becomes a suspect of a fraud investigation. I'm sorry, let me retake that. Tate becomes a suspect of a fraud investigation. No! And Holly's dad decides to confront him at the ball in front of everyone. Debut, I feel like, is the theme of this episode. Um, it is the, it's the debut of, of Holly's dad is the debut of all these women in society. But more importantly, the beginning of the episode is the debut of Ryan as a Jewish man, as he's adopted by the Coens. <laughs> Mazel. That's fantastic news. Have you guys ever heard before this series or this episode, had you guys ever even heard of a cotillion? Cause I had not. Oh, I have, but that's cause I'm from Bougie, South Tulsa. That's right. Wait, did you, wait, did you have a cotillion? No, I didn't have a cotillion. What they do in Tulsa instead is they call it skillies. That's so much worse. It's this very, like, ancient lady. It, like, it's, it's the point where everyone's parent took from this lady also, and she teaches you how to the ballroom dance. And then you have a big formal at, uh, like, Southern Hills or something like that. They have an official cotillion, but, like, virtually no one in Tulsa does it. As a young thing growing up in Tulsa, everyone does skillies, everyone does symphony set, that's it. It's much more medium-priced than a typical cotillion, so. But when they say debut into society, what exactly does that even mean? Like, Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you this much. Uh, cotillion is not a word that I was even aware of before this show came out because we... 125% didn't have cotillions in Lawton. Um, <laughs> I know that it's named uh, for an 18th century French dance. Um, and I, I feel like it's almost as if white people wanted a version of a quinceanera for all of their girls. And they were like, well, we're just going to go ahead and do this, but name it something French. There's a very important, there's two very important characters that we see in this episode uh one becomes significantly more important than the other but one is the return of peggy the dress lady from episode one the backstage fashion show woman peggy's back she's teaching everything there is to teach about cotillion she's given him waltz lessons um they apparently learned to waltz for three hours which is insane but also we get the debut if you will god i should have said that at the beginning <laughs> the debut <laughs> Of Anna, Anna Stern. Dixie Princess. Oh my gosh. Well, and I'm going to go ahead and say Anna's debut was the outfit of the episode. Yeah. Not what I would have expected again. That's great. Girlfriend's wearing, like she's straight out of Hot Topic with a little splash of packed sun. She's wearing a white blazer (laughs) with pieces of flair on the lapel. I'm curious to see what those pieces of flair said. I went to Hot Topic and bought them all the time. But she's wearing a checkerboard sweatband. Uh, you can see underneath her blazer that she's wearing an Urban Outfitters graphic tee. It says something about Texas. I don't remember the catchphrase, but do you remember it was like Virginia is for lovers and stuff like that? Yes. They're pretty cool. Uh, she's wearing a spiky studded belt that is attached to no articles of clothing. Peak emo. It was a great moment. Uh, I definitely went through a phase where I dressed like that. I'm not joking when I say that I also went through a phase where I dressed like that. <laughs> I love that your fashion moment had nothing to do with Cotillion, by the way. White dresses, come on. Um, So there's a couple of subplots happening here. One is this whole thing with uh, Tate, who kind of of reveals to Sandy that he may or may not be getting investigated for fraud. Holly's dad's really, really put the pressure on him in a way that I I couldn't decide if Holly's dad was right or wrong. Not at Cotillion, man. Yeah, but he brought it up a bunch of times and Tate just kept dodging him. I don't know. Not to fight him, but I would also be very upset if I were in a situation. Uh, also, shout out, uh, Greg Fisher is none other than Ted Beneke from Breaking Bad. That's why he looked familiar. <laughs> Wait, IFT, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they spent, because they are careful on AMC, you were only allowed to say so many F- F-bombs per season. So they saved that season for her just coldly looking at Walt and saying, I fucked Ted. Ma'am. What is his wife's name? What is Walt's wife's what is his wife's Skyler. name? Skylar. Yeah, so are we sure that Skylar is not Holly's mom? Can we <gasps> can we draw this connection? <gasps> oh. <laughs> what a beautiful universe it all, just created. All TV takes place in the same universe if you believe hard That's enough. Right. That would that would definitely 
That would definitely track with uh, Alan Dale playing the same character in every show. <laughs> well, and I think now we know what happened to AJ, question mark. <gasps> R.I.P., maybe? No. He's off somewhere living his best life, uh, freed from the shackles of a loveless marriage uh, with Dawn or loveless relationship. Um, I Before we go further, I think that we have mm-hmm. two of the most iconic Seth Cohen lines in at least the first season. Uh, he says to Ryan... Um, congratulations, you're a Cohen now. Welcome to a life of insecurity and paralyzing self-doubt. That's a solid mm-hmm. Seth Cohen line. But one of my favorite Seth Cohen lines, there's one coming up later in the first se- in this season that's better. But um, when he introduces himself and he goes, Seth Cohen, White Knight. I love that line, that delivery. It is perfect. When we talk about first episode Seth, like we did last week, where he was very, very awkward and like no confidence he kind of stood up for himself with Ryan on the beach in the first episode. But in these last couple episodes, like him doing the thing with summer at casino night, uh, him talking shit to his mom and dad really standing up for Ryan. And uh, now I felt like in this episode, he was very much like into letting summer know he's into her Mm -hmm. in a way that he would have never done literally what two weeks ago, according to the timeline. Back in, you know, we were hypothesizing about why Ryan had such a drastic change in character for better. Um, you know, maybe because he's now in a wonderful household with uh, Sandy and Kiki as his parents. I mean, maybe the same thing happened for Seth. Maybe now that he has a brother in this world, he found a new sense of confidence. I don't know. I like that. I also, I really like how, you know, you have confident Seth, but then you also have confident Seth putting himself out there and he gets his heart broken and he starts moping. And then that's when you really see that Anna is going to be an important character, not just for the show, but for Seth specifically, when she's like, you know, stop moping, stop doing that. What do women like? Confidence, Cohen. And I feel like from this this point on, you're getting a different kind of Seth. So I have a very brief nerd minute. I've decided that I'm calling it a nerd minute because I want it to encompass comics <laughs> and books. But um, first of all, I feel like they kind of overwrote Anna's nerd cred um, she kind of gives off the, the this person was made in the lab for Seth Cohen vibe because at one point Anna calls uh, Marissa Princess Mononoke um, and have either of you seen uh, Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke? Of course not. You, it's amazing. It's it, the American version was written by Neil Gaiman. It's uh, it's it's you know it's a Hideo Miyazaki movie. He's Japan's Walt Disney. But so I don't get this. Princess Mononoke, the character is a human raised by wolves. So what I'm trying to figure out is how is this a good reference for Marissa? Julie Cooper. Okay, valid point. Because I say, am I missing something? Do they just want to point out that she's into Miyazaki and she's into comics? And also, uh, Samory Armstrong, who plays Anna, was actually born in Japan. So she somehow, does she okay this? If she grew up in Japan? I'm confused. There was the line where Seth literally says, I wrote it down here. I'm trying to find it. He says, I cannot believe you read comic books. I mean, you're a girl. That's, yeah. Huh, I expected a little more well-rounded of a worldview from you, but whatever, go off. Speaking of well-rounded worldview, can we talk about what we discussed in episode of our first episode last week, which was the scene where, uh, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uh, like swapping of cotillion partners in this episode. Like it starts with Ryan and Anna, then it becomes Ryan and Marissa, or it was Luke and Mar- it was Luke and Marissa. Then it's Ryan and Marissa. Then it's Seth and Summer. Then it's then it's Summer and Ryan. Then it's now it's somebody. It's uh, it, it gets confusing. The point is, there's a scene where um, Ryan and Marissa are learning to waltz together, and Luke walks in and he has the line where he says, "I would be offended if Chino wasn't gay." And then everyone kind of looks at him and he goes, "Well, he can't help it. He's born that way." So can we can we deduce that Luke's worldview is? less problematic than Seth Cohen's in this episode. That's impressive. That's, that's, that's a lot of progression. Turns out all you have to do is save a boy you don't like from a fire to realize that the world is much bigger than your Abercrombie and Fitch fitting room, Luke. <laughs> what a special moment for him. Yeah. You all know, right. just visually, I think this was a really cool episode. The girls in the white dresses. Um, there's a beautiful scene of uh, Tate walking Marissa down the in, the entryway that is in the opening credits because it's such a beautiful, heartwarming moment. And I cry every time because Tate looks so handsome. I will say this. I feel like we're, we're trending in a direction where we're going to become a very pro-Luke podcast. <laughs> we're pro-Luke. We narrate the entire uh, second, third, and fourth season just 
through the lens of how Luke would react. Oh my God. When we get into season two, we need to do a segment of like, what would have, what Luke would have done in this episode. <laughs> I mean, talk, best redemption arc. Mm-hmm. Couple, just a couple more notes that I have for this episode. Uh, Ryan doing the waltz with Marissa, his hands are disgusting. He needed a manicure. Gross. Uh, when Tate's card gets declined at the restaurant, she's very loud about it. She's just like, I'm sorry, sir, your card is declined from like across the room, uh, which I thought was very funny. Seth uses the word barbecutionist, which I really enjoy. They go to this party. They go to Holly's Beach House again before Cotillion. And there's literally no reason for them to go to this party. The whole point, the whole crux of this episode is Ryan's trying to stay out of trouble, but there's a party they don't need to go for any reason. And Ryan says, let's not go. So that's like, we should go. And then they go. And I don't understand it. Like, there's no point to this party. Nothing happens at the party other than Seth going up to Summer and saying, I just want to make sure we're still on for tomorrow, which is like not a good well, move. It's an exposition party. But like, we were, why would we, why would they not still be on for tomorrow? We knew that, we already knew that they were dates to Cotillion. Anyway, I just thought that whole party scene was very pointless. To the credit of the kids... I mean, they were pretty inclusive. They didn't kick Ryan and Seth out at the door. They were always allowed in the parties. They were always offered a beverage. Good for them. Mm-hmm. I uh, I also have to have to say that, you know, we talked a little bit in the first episode and we even talked a little bit in this this episode about Summer as a character and how, like, she is literally the worst um, in these early episodes. But... I think I've managed to identify the moment where she becomes cool or starts to become cool. And I think it's when Seth rejects her and says, mm, I'm going to go this way. And he takes yeah. Anna out there. I think that's the moment that summer begins her own upward mobility story into the realm of the cool and good characters. I agree. That was a good humbling moment for her. couple more notes. Uh, I just wrote hard eyes next to Anna and Seth. Sandy and Ryan they were playing Dynasty Warriors 4 at the beginning of the episode. That's uh, what a great it was. game. There you go. I got you on your nerd moment there. Dang it. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote for some reason Peggy is basically the main character of this show. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Peggy is basically the, like, the ingenue wrangler. I'm here for it. I do have a note. I call, this is a, very, a segment that's only going to occur probably once, and it's this episode. It's the bad legal advice segment. When Mm -hmm. Sandy um, says to Ryan, as your attorney, I advise you get out of here. That's terrible legal advice. Oh, that's literally what it was. Wow. You just completely, you just completely like jogged my, my memory here. There's the moment where they're, uh, they're on Ryan. So no one's going to Cotillion at this point. Like so many people decide they're not going to go. Ryan actually decides that he is going to go when he goes to Marissa and she asks him to zip her dress up. And suddenly he's just like horny for Cotillion because he, like, that's the only reason he decides to go. It's because she like looks hot mm, back. Yeah. <laughs> but before that he's with Sandy on the couch, they're playing video games and uh ryan asks sandy like what's your secret like what's your big secret and sandy says sometimes i like it here yeah so yeah the episode ends with uh with holly's dad punching tate what do i I have i have the order of the punches here tate gets punched sandy gets punched ryan tackles holly's dad holly's dad's a loose cannon um (laughs) ryan apologizes to the cohen's for getting involved with the fight so this is literally I believe the same day they've adopted him where the whole, the rule is you can't get in trouble, right? Ryan apologizes to the Coens and they literally say, well, I think we can make an exception for the fight. Like it's day one. I have a note in all caps to say, Greg seriously has no chill. How dare he punch Sandy Cohen? So uh, that really affected me deeply. Um, I, I see Tate Donovan as an every man. He can take a punch. He can get back up. He's like Indiana Jones. But when you punch my precious, precious boy, Sandy Cohen, um, I take great offense to that. See, I don't know. I'm Team Greg on this. He's obviously a patron of the children. He lets them party at his house. Especially, he, he actually spells it out. He's like, I've got like an opportunity to make a big investment right now, and that door is gonna close. And Tate's just like, I can't help you, man. I stole your money, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But still, there's no reason to punch Sandy. I wonder. Well, my question in my head is, I wonder how they landed on the two hundred fifty thousand dollar number. Just because, I mean, that is really, really alarming if he was um, the hedge fund manager of this entire community and this entire community, their kids casually carry Birkins as their book bags and, you know, Chanel totes as their book bags. And- except, for, except for the scene at Holly's Beach Party where Summer only had $11 on her, which I thought was interesting. Oh, hmm. she has, she has, I, she's like a credit card person. I feel like she doesn't have cash. 
You're probably right. Um, so yeah, that's basically the the episode ends with uh, the weird scene with Marissa. She's outside. Where she lives. Oh no, this is a different house. <laughs> <laughs> this is outside Cotillion. <laughs> this is her other house where she lives. Yeah, it's like the country club. Yeah, it's outside Cotillion. But the idea of Marissa living outside is my favorite. <laughs> it's my favorite new thing for for this show. Ryan comes up, he gives her his jacket, they talk. Uh, Luke shows up. Luke looks like peak psychopath. He's ominously standing behind them with his hair slicked all the way back. It's not a good look for Luke. American Psycho. Definitely. Uh, but Marissa kind of just basically basically gives the, the signal, I guess, that she's choosing neither of them. And she kind of leaves. And that's the end of the episode. I remember when I watched that, when I, was, when, it was, when I first saw it, it kind of made me wonder, like, what if, what if Luke, Luke and Ryan dated end up together yeah like marissa's like i reject you both and they're like well you know what progressive that'd be the oc 2020 if they did a reboot and it wouldn't be all white people 100 percent, agreed did you see the trailer for the reboot of saved by the bell by the way what yeah the trailer dropped last week during the middle of our ice crisis i i don't think it's something that can be handled or is it yeah i surprisingly didn't hate it like i was into fuller house I was too, dude. I fucking loved Fuller House. Sorry, Chelsea. Do you have to sit through this conversation? Yeah, no, it was oh, it was no, so I, good. Well, I, was thinking, I watched the first couple episodes of Nine Hundred Two One Zero. Ooh, yeah, but that was a good one though. Like Fuller House was like a kid show on Netflix, but it was still great. The best thing about Fuller House was that Stephanie became a pro DJ, and her name was DJ Tanner. That's so that's <laughs> so good. That's I an know. example of a show writing an entire show around a joke, and I am here for it. Speaking of uh, DJing, the only we had our we had our fashion moment. The only this was a pretty weak episode for music. Um, I have this uh, song "Play Some D" by Brassy, which everyone knows. They just don't realize they know it. Like if you look up Brassy "Play Some D," you know that song, and it is what played during Cotillion, I believe. It's like just a it's a fun song. Here, hold on, hold on, I'll check. There you go. Okay, uh, yeah, I know that song. Yeah. That sounds like it always reminded me of a song that would be on SSX Tricky. I'm pretty sure it was. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's our soundtrack moment of the episode. That's the episode. That's where we're. That's where we're leaving off. We're leaving off with a big kind of cliffhanger. Now is what's going to happen with Marissa and Luke and Ryan. So yeah, that was uh, that was episode two, three, and four of season one of the OC. We would love to hear from anyone out there who may be listening to this out there in the universe somewhere. It could be 20 years from now. We don't care. Uh, you can email us at our brand new email address. I feel like that's going to get an air horn as well. Cohen's pod, Cohen's pod, C-O-H-E-N-S-P-O-D at gmail.com. I hate saying P-O-D out loud because it reminds me of that shitty Christian band from the 2000s. We are the youth of the nation. <laughs> Payable on death. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at Cohen's pod, C-O-H-E-N-S-P-O-D again. So send us emails, find us on Instagram uh, and, and talk to us. We want to, we want to be social. We want to talk about the thing that we love, right? I was asking you guys a question. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. I want to know what love is. And I want you all to show me by following us on Instagram and sending us an email. Let us know which episode did you like the most? Do you think we know what we're talking about? If not, let us know. Uh, also make sure to write us a review. If you're so inclined. Ooh. That's why Dylan's a pro. Dylan's a pro podcast. I, uh, you know, I'll take it, whatever. Um, but if, if you all want to help the show, truly one of the best ways you can is by giving us a rating, writing us a review. Um, the more reviews and ratings a podcast has, the more likely it is that when someone types in the OC and that little search bar, that our show will show up on that first page and we will be able to spread the gospel of Sanford Cohen um, to the masses, which is really our goal here. But um, I don't know. You guys have anything else? Smash that subscribe button. Smash that. You can follow us on Twitter as well. Uh, I am at raked, R-A-Y-K-E-D. Chelsea, shout yourself out. Trini Woodstock. Like Trinidad and Woodstock as in the infamous concert. I'm at Dylan <laughs> Irwin, but spelled cool. It's D-Y-L-N-R-W-N. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram that way. And then I think we also, like I said in the first episode, we have a TikTok celebrity as well. Uh, Chelsea, where can they follow you on TikTok? Oh yeah. Uh, it's exactly handle at Trini Woodstock. You'll you'll get to see me acting a fool. There you go. So we've 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 covered the entirety of disc one. This is something really important that we need to do when we finish a disc. Who was on this disc? Oh shit. Oh god. Was it Sandy? I think on this first disc it was Ryan. Here, let me look it up real quick. 
the OC season one disc one contains a amazing photo of Ryan Atwood. So that that was the Ryan Atwood disc of season one. So next week we'll be back. We'll be covering all of season two. So you, if you're listening along and you have a, you got homework to do, we'll be back with episodes disc uh, two. five, six, seven, and eight. Disc two, sorry, not season two. <laughs> um, yeah, episodes five, six, seven, and eight. We'll get into it. We'll deep dive next week on Keeping Up with the Coens. Say goodbye, guys. Later. See you later. Later.